0: I would remind you this morning of something I have reminded you of before, but I felt like I needed to remind you again that there is a God and you have a soul. And so, who is this God? If there is a God in the world, what is he like? If someone were to come and do a man on the street interview and stick a microphone in your face this week and say, Who is God and what is he like? what would you say? I hope that what we see here this morning would do something to shape your understanding of who God is, because most of the time in our day, we people have a very low view of God, that God is basically like us, but we'll see this morning that that is not the case. And secondly, that you have a soul, and so my question always before you is, what is the state of your soul before God? How do you relate to God in your soul? Have you come to believe in Him as Savior? Have you confessed your sins to God that you might have peace with Him? And we'll see this morning a dramatic example of a sinner being forgiven of their sins and and coming to peace with God in a way that is important for all time for us to remember. And lastly, the date of our occasion this morning as we read in Isaiah chapter 6, I'm sorry, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 8, is the year 740 BC, the year that King Uzziah died, the king of Judah, who had reigned for 52 years, but for a long time had been uh, quarantined away as a leper, as we talked some weeks ago about how the Lord touched him with leprosy during the time of rebellion in his life. But the end of the life of King Uzziah had come. And in that year, the Lord reveals himself to his prophet, the prophet Isaiah. So please stand with me as we read the word of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. This will be a two-part message. This morning we're going to go through verse 8 and next week we'll go from verse 8 through the end of the chapter. And this is a radically important chapter in the Bible to grasp What we'll go over next week is quoted in all four of the Gospels because it's a very, very important passage. And it is impossible to overstate the importance of the attribute of God of holiness. When we say, what kind of God do we serve? Who is the Lord? He is holy is the first attribute that should come across our lips. So we'll look at three parts of this passage this morning. First, the glory of God in his holiness. Second, the response and calling of Isaiah, and then we'll get next week into the word of the Lord to Isaiah. But this morning, the glory of God in holiness. What we have before us this morning is a vision. A vision is when the Lord reveals the spiritual world to a physical person. God causing a person to see into the spiritual world. We have this type of thing happening in various places throughout the Bible. It is not a regular thing or a normal thing, but it is something that happens for God's purposes in his time to reveal something about himself that the world might know more about who God is. It is always for a purpose. This one takes place at the transition of kings, an uncertain political time in the country, in a time where Isaiah might doubt his calling as a prophet as things change over. And the Lord reveals himself to Isaiah to to reaffirm his prophetic calling. And as the Lord reveals himself to Isaiah, this is an exalted scene of glory. Four parts to this. The first is that he sees the Lord exalted, high and lifted up. Elevation is always a a sign of honor, and the Lord is not just a little bit lifted up, but he is high and lifted up. Something about this situation, Isaiah is looking up at the Lord, seated where he is, and he is enthroned. He's not just standing there, he's seated on a throne. A throne is a seat of authority, and this high, exalted, heavenly throne is a place of absolute authority. This is the throne of the living God, the creator of heaven and of earth. He is seated there as a judge, as a judge of all the earth. This authority that is over Isaiah and over all of Judah is felt by Isaiah, as we'll see here in a moment. The Lord our God, seated upon this throne, highly exalted, is dressed as a king. And this matters because there's different ways in which the Lord presents himself. At certain times, and as we know, in Christ himself, he comes as a suffering servant, presenting himself in a lowly way. But in this vision, the Lord is high and exalted. And he is dressed as a king seated upon an exalted throne. And the train of the robe, the train of his robe is, is cascading down this throne and into the temple. There is no humility here, only glory. It is a place of exaltation. And as it says, it is not in a palace, which we might expect, but it is instead in a temple. The train of his robes filled the temple, the end of verse one. What is a temple? A temple is a place of worship. A temple is a place where we go to exalt the Lord our God. And there is a temple there in heaven. And the Lord is to be worshiped in this. It is not a place of governance or residence, but a place of worship. And so upon this exalted throne and in this heavenly temple, the Lord is attended to by his servants. So what are the servants that are attending to the Lord in this situation? It says in verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim translated means burning one, which is fascinating. Uh, Who knows what what these looked like, but there's something of flame about these angels, which should not surprise us because the Lord is often revealing himself as a flame of fire in the Old Testament and is referred to as a consuming fire in the New Testament. But these angelic servants in glory existing to do the will of God, his servants are there attending to him and they're described as having six wings each. Two to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, and two to fly with. The first two are the most interesting to me. Here they are in the presence of Almighty God, Him exalted and throned above. These servants that are in His presence continually, but they have their faces covered. Why would they have their faces covered? Because the glory of the Lord God is too great to look directly upon. They cover their faces because they cannot look squarely at the glory of God. It is like the radiant power of the sun, but beheld in one person. We are so far away from the sun. But in a a heavy uh, spring day or summer day when the sun's straight overhead, you can't even begin to look straight at the sun because even as far away as it is, its radiance is overpowering to us. And that closer and closer anything gets to the sun, it will just simply be destroyed. But the idea of the Lord our God is that all of the radiant power of the Lord is, is just that. It's radiant. He is called the light of the world. And that means a number of different things. The Bible tells us that in heaven there will be no sun. Why? Because the Lord God himself, his radiance will be as the sun. And there will be no night. Because he doesn't rise and fall, but is forever radiant in his glory. We're told now in our time that the Lord is the light of the world. So he is not only a physical light, but a moral light of all goodness. We talked about this some last week, that all that is good emanates from the Lord. And when we want to know what is good and right and follow after what is good and right, we follow after the Lord our God. And so the Lord is light and goodness in every possible way. And we're going to see here in this passage that Isaiah is overwhelmed by both of these things. He cannot either look at him physically or he is also overwhelmed morally as a sinner before God. This moral and physical light coming from the Lord is something that the angels must cover their faces from. And it's amazing in scripture because there's a passing down of these things. There are many different occasions in the Bible where people see angels. And these angels come into the presence of a person and that the glory of that angel causes the person to be so fearful that they fall down or cover themselves or are fearful of the situation. And that's just an angel that has been in the presence of God, coming out of the presence of God down to where we are here. And so it's similar to Moses, when Moses spent time with the Lord and he came down out of the tent of meeting or off of Mount Sinai, and there was like a glory emanating from him that was so overwhelming that he had to put a a veil over his face. It's a fascinating thing. So if we are separated in such degrees from the glory of God, and it's still terrifying for us to behold, imagine then standing directly in the presence of the Lord. And so this is what we have before us. This is what is unfolding with Isaiah as he sees the Lord. But these angels also cover their feet seemingly in modesty, and they also are flying. But the message they call to each other in an antiphonal way back and forth and back and forth is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. R.C. Sproul does an outstanding job uh, conveying to us what this is talking about. In ancient Hebrew, holy, 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 or anything elevated or repeated to the third degree is the superlative sense in uh, Hebrew. So for us, it's great, greater, greatest. When we add the words, the letters EST to the end of something, that's the highest sense that we can speak to. In Hebrew, they repeated it three times, holy, 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 meaning the highest degree possible of holiness, and this is what we have in the Lord our God. He is holy to the highest degree that we can express in language. To be holy is to be other. It is to be separated from. Well, separated from what? Well, God is separated first from sin and evil. As we spoke about last week, God is all that is good. There is no darkness in Him. He is all light and all righteousness. And He is separated wholly from all evil. God is all good. God is love. God is mercy. He is kindness. He is joy, peace, justice, righteousness. He is patience. He is goodness. He is gentleness. He is faithfulness all things that come in this way come from him and we follow after him in this way and he is holy in these things separated from all that is wicked but the Lord God is also separated from every created being because he is the creator and it's really important that we understand this When we deny the doctrine of creation in the Bible, all kinds of things fall to pieces. But especially this, the idea that God as the creator has created all manner of things. These seraphim, these angelic messengers are a part of this. But I want to read to you a word from A.W. Tozer from his book, Knowledge of the Holy, about this separated holiness of God. We must not think of God as the highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with the single cell and going on up uh, from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to cherub to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. It's worth thinking about. There is no way to compare the creator to the created. There is a gulf that separates them. We are made by God. We cannot ascend to be like him because we are not like him. He is holy, holy, holy holy. He is fully separated. But this is what makes his condescension to us so incredible and so nearly impossible to understand. But this great holy Lord of hosts is filling the world with his glory. The whole earth, it says, is full of his glory. It's really important that you catch that. Not that he plans to fill the earth with his glory or hopes that the earth will be full of his glory, but the world is full of his glory. Glory is a magnificent presence. The magnificent presence of the Lord is filling the world. It is worthy of rejoicing. The Lord is worthy today of our worship. That's why we sang to him this morning. That's why we make a joyful noise. That's why we read scripture. That's why we give thanks. That's why we do the things that we do because God is worthy of these things today. Malachi chapter one, verses 11 is an interesting verse to me, a beautiful verse. The last prophet in the Old Testament, again, speaking to the rebellion of the people just before their exile, the Lord reminds them through Malachi 1:11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. No matter how wicked the people are, no matter how far away they stray, no matter how hard and rebellious their hearts are, the rebellion of the wicked will not lessen the glory of the exalted God. It will only increase the condemnation of the wicked. And that's really important. Because often we fear what is going on in the world and the wickedness of the world causes us to be unsettled. But God seated upon this high and exalted throne is never unsettled by the wickedness of this world. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 speaks very clearly to this. It speaks about the, the natural revelation of God to the whole earth being full of God's glory. It says specifically in Romans 1, 20, that his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly perceived in what has been made. Yesterday was supposed to be a rainy, terrible day. But I was out there in the afternoon working and it was just a, it was a beautiful day. And clouds are puffing by and you know, as I'm out there doing something with some wood, a cardinal flies by. I just love that. It's, it's gr- everything's kind of green and this big, beautiful piece of red flies into the picture and sits down. Like, that's amazing. You know, that's amazing. I don't, if I was going to make this, I don't think I would do that. Like, that's just really, really wild. It's artistic. The heavens declare the glory of God. And there are countless other things that speak to the invisible attributes, the eternal power, and the divine nature of God. And Paul says these things are clearly perceived in what has been made, but the wicked will not acknowledge it. They will not acknowledge it. And we all know people like that. People that see the same things that you see every day, but they come up with some either bizarre explanation or just refuse completely to believe or accept that there is a God. They harden their hearts against it. As Isaiah looks on this scene, on this scene of the temple, in all this glory of God who will be glorified, who fills the whole earth with his glory, the temple begins to shake and smoke begins to fill the whole place. This smoke filling the temple is not a new idea. We need to understand in the chronology of these things, we're mid to late in the, in the history of Judah. And so before that is all the history of Israel leaving uh, Egypt and the tabernacle and the building of the temple. And there are many occasions of the Lord presenting himself in a cloud, and so especially in smoke filling his temple. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 9, we're told about Moses going to the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord as a friend did face to face, and over and over, the the cloud and the Shekinah glory of God would descend upon that place and, and overwhelm it. It was something mysterious. And one of the most interesting and powerful of all these occasions is in 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14, where Solomon is dedicating the new temple. And the temple is filled with smoke, it says. It's filled with smoke, the glory of God to such an extent that it actually drives out the uh, priests trying to administer to the Lord. They can't do it because of the glory of God. The Lord is going to fill this place in the dedication of it. And then they can come back in. Excuse me. So Isaiah knew these things. He understood this. And so what he is seeing here before him is yet another occasion of this, but a a heavenly rendering of it. There's something, there's a lot to think about there. This idea of of smoke filling a place to where it just drives you out. It's something mysterious. It's something silent. It's something that clouds the view so that you can't see what is there. And yet there is glorious light coming from it. But it's a consistent image Of the Lord all throughout the scriptures. Well, Isaiah knows that he is seeing God, but I would ask you this morning: in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, do we have any indication of particularly who he is seeing? And the answer is yes. So interesting. The Bible is fascinating. In the New Testament, Interprets for us the Old Testament. And Jesus and the apostles tell us things about his word that we don't know in the Old Testament. So if you want to, turn with me to John chapter 12. I'm going to read for us from John chapter 12, verses 36 through 41. This is Jesus in his ministry. And this is one of the places where Jesus quotes this very passage uh, of Scripture. And so I'm going to read for us John 36, uh, B through 41. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from him. though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe Him, verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord who has believed uh, Lord, who has believed what He heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. for again, Isaiah said, "He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is an exact quotation of what I'll be preaching to you about next week, later uh, in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. John is describing the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had just done these things, many, many miraculous things, much teaching amongst the people, but their hearts were hard. And Isaiah said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What we have here before us is the resurrected Christ. We have Christ Jesus exalted before his incarnation. It's really important that you understand that Jesus Jesus the Son is an eternally existing part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in three persons. If you're here this morning and you think that Jesus came about at the time of his birth, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that Jesus has been and eternally was God. And what John is teaching to us here this morning is that Jesus is the one who was seated upon this throne. Jesus is fulfilling this same prophecy in a secondary way. It was fulfilled once in the nation of Judah and fulfilled again during the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah sees his glory. Isaiah spoke of his glory. Jesus is eternally and gloriously existing. And I want to keep pulling this thread because when I read this verse, it just made me think of so many different things, and it's worth thinking about these things. We think of the glorious, exalted, enthroned Jesus before his incarnation. In John chapter 17, verse five, where Jesus is praying just before his crucifixion, it's a magnificent chapter in the Bible and it says so many things. In John chapter 17, verse five, he says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's a powerful prayer. Jesus is saying, I have humbled myself, and now I'm praying that you will restore me to the place of glory that we shared together before the world existed. The type of glory that is being described here in Isaiah chapter 6, it is from this radical glory seen by Isaiah, this incomprehensible holiness that Jesus was humbled. I don't believe that you can appreciate the humility of the incarnation of Christ without looking to this exalted passage of the glory of Jesus in the Old Testament. We saw another part of this in Daniel months ago when it talks about Jesus and his glory before the incarnation. But when we look at this great glory of Jesus and then we think about the humility of Christ incarnate, it is shocking. This Jesus born as a baby... Laid with animals, raised in a simple working class home, touching lepers, having children come and sit on his lap. Let the dirty crowds press in around him, mocked by scoffers, scoffers despised by religious elite, forsaken by his own disciples, spat upon, beaten, falsely accused, crucified, buried, and then risen on the third day. Death defeated, the forgiveness of sin made possible, and the power of evil broken, but then ascended to heaven. We have glory, we have humility, and then we have ascension back to glory. Returning to the glory of eternity past and into the glory of eternity future. So let's look at another passage this morning. Revelation chapter 4, I'll read it for us. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. But I'm going to read for us Revelation chapter 4 about the future glory of Christ and to see the, the perfect connection between the ancient glory of Christ before his incarnation and the future glory of Christ after his ascension. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. "'Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. "'Seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, "'clothed in white garments, "'with golden crowns on their heads. "'From the throne came flashes of lightning "'and rumblings and peals of thunder. "'And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, "'which are the seven spirits of God. "'And before the throne there was, as it were, "'a sea of glass like crystal. "'And around the throne on each side of the throne "'are four living creatures.' and were created. Yes, praise the Lord. I want you to see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Lord God and his work before he came and then his incarnation and the accomplishing of the salvation of our souls upon the cross and his resurrection and his ascension back to glory and glory that we by his grace and by faith will partake in one day. I want you to have a response that is similar to the response of Isaiah because that's where we're gonna go next. We have painted this picture of what is happening in heaven, but there's a response. It always is amazing to me how people can hear these things and sit there like a lump on the log and just not care and walk right out and go watch football this afternoon. It's not football season, uh, whatever season it is. Sorry, I don't watch much football, but go out and just not care about these things. These things should affect you deeply. If there is a God and you have a soul, these things should affect you deeply. And they affected Isaiah. The response of Isaiah is the second part of this passage. And what is shocking is all of this, all of this scene of heaven and these angelic things and things that Isaiah has never seen before, his first response is not to start writing things down or say, that's amazing, I want to look around. He is absolutely overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. That's the immediate reaction. It's the same immediate reaction that people, when they are in the presence of angels that are messengers sent from God, they are overwhelmed by their own sinfulness and they're terrified and they immediately fall down. And it's the same thing that happens with Isaiah. Those that think that when they first see the Lord God, they're gonna go up and give him a high five and say, hey bro, so good to see you. Like this, they have not read the Bible because this is not what is going to happen. This exalted holy God, will cause us to be humbled before him whether we choose to or not. He is deeply aware of his own personal sin and the sin of the nation. He is overwhelmed. He says, "I am lost. I cannot be in the presence of this holy God. It will I will die." And I want you to see that the response of Isaiah is not unusual. In Luke chapter 5, there's a most interesting occasion It's the occasion of the first calling of the disciples. And Jesus is going out to the Sea of Galilee and is there with Peter and Andrew and they've been fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. And the crowds are pressing in around him and says, Peter, can I use your boat to stand in the bow of your boat and preach and teach these people because they're just pressing in all around me. And so you get the the view of of a sort of beached boat with Jesus preaching and teaching from the bow of the boat. When he finishes preaching and teaching, he says, Peter, I want you to go out, you and, and Andrew, and cast your nets in the deep and see if you can catch some more fish. And they're like, Jesus, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything. But it says very clearly, because of your word, we will go and do this. And so they do. They go out and they drop their nets down one time and there's so many fish in the net, they have to call out another boat and it almost sinks both of the boats. And Jesus is apparently on the boat with them. And why I'm Reading this to you today is it's the first time that Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God. And what is his immediate reaction? Luke 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What kind of a fisherman catches the biggest catch of his entire life, and his immediate reaction to it is, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. This has nothing to do with fish. It has to do with the miraculous power of Almighty God breaking into the world. And Peter realizing that he's standing in the presence of God and his first reaction is, I am a sinful man. He kneels down, he falls down on his knees, at Jesus' knees, depart from me, I am a sinner. And this is the right reaction. This is the reaction that every single person has that truly recognizes who God is. You cannot recognize who God is and not come under the conviction of your sins. You will come under the conviction of your sins. And this is how God works in your heart to bring you to a place of confession and repentance and belief. Jesus is divine. He's the son of God. He is holy, holy, holy. Peter knew it for the first time and he has the same response as Isaiah. But the Lord, when we go back to Isaiah and the same with Peter, but we don't have time this morning to look at it. When Isaiah is overwhelmed with his sinfulness, for I am lost, it says in verse five, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, why, why lips? Often in the Bible, the, the mouth is described as something of, of great evil, especially in James chapter 3, because it's what, it's what conveys what is in our heart out to the world. And so all of the wickedness that is bound up in our hearts ends up coming out of our mouths. And with our mouth, we both tell people we love them and we curse them. We bless God and we deny him. And the same sinful mouth is going to be the mouth that God uses to proclaim his word through Isaiah. And so he touches him. He forgives his sins. There is a symbolic picture here. Verse six, when one of the seraphim, one of these angelic messengers proclaiming the holiness of God flies to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken with tongs from the altar. And he touches his mouth and says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What we have going on here is a a symbolic picture of the refining fire of God burning away the dross or the, the sinfulness of humanity, but it is a declaration of the real forgiveness of sins because only God can forgive sins. But when God forgives your sins, your sins are forgiven and you are free from the burden and the weight of those things that you might go for and live. And so Isaiah is able to come up from his low posture and stand up before the Lord. And as we're going to see, volunteer for service to give his life to serve for the Lord. And it's going to be a long journey. But it begins with forgiveness. The real guilt of our sins removed. So much of the preaching of the gospel in our day does not have to do with real guilt. It has to do with feelings and making you feel better about yourself whereas you felt bad about yourself. The Bible is about the real removal of guilt, that you are no longer guilty before God, but that instead you can be welcomed into the presence of God because your sins have been removed by him. So as we wrap this up this morning, I would ask you, where are you? Do you have a low view of God? This, we live in a day where most people have a very low view of God. Most people, it's so low, they don't even think about God. It doesn't even cross their mind that anything we're talking about here today even exists. They fall in with Romans chapter 1. They do not see fit to acknowledge the glory of God. We are called as a people to acknowledge the glory of God. I'm urging you this morning to have a high view of God. I think it's impossible to have too high of a view of God, but to understand the mercy of Christ. Because when we have this high view of God which humbles us to the lowest place, the mercy of Christ is that which lifts us up from that low place. That when we recognize and repent of our sins and believe in Jesus and we follow after the pattern of Isaiah and follow after the pattern of Peter, we are brought in near to the Lord. Having a high view of God results in a low view of yourself that by grace and mercy alone you might be forgiven of your guilt and brought close to this glorious God, this glorious God that the seraphim cannot even look directly upon. We might call him Father, that we might have his ear in prayer, that his hand might guide our path in this life, that his strength would animate our life, that his life is sustaining us forever. And though you die, yet you shall live. And this is the eternal life of Christ, this great power of the Lord in us that we might live. I hope this helps you in some way this morning to see who God is and the great mercy that he has towards us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your glory And for revealing some of your glory, revealing some of the the heavenly throne of the Lord our God and Jesus seated upon this throne, he who was humbled, born of a virgin, ministering in the most humble way, ascended again into heaven and seated again upon this throne, never to be unseated from it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, help us to have such a high view of God that we want to worship. Not that we have to worship, but that we want to worship, that we want to make much of God and that knowing who you are and that we can be forgiven of our sins and have peace with God and waiting for you, Lord, to lift us up, exalting us by your hand in your time. Lord, we wait upon you. We hope for eternal life. We believe in these things by faith. We live by faith. We pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might bear the fruits of your Spirit, that these beautiful, wonderful attributes that are in you might also be in us. We pray, God, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.